Good morning. I want to say welcome to you, those of you that are here with us at South City on campus. We've got a good crew this morning. Not so many bank robbers. We've got, we've got less bank robbers. Still got a couple of uh, folks with masks on, and that's okay. Listen, I want to just say to us, uh, we are one body, and it is, we're cool with whatever, however you feel, okay? If you want to wear a mask, great. If you don't, great. Okay, we just need to know that we love one another. The Bible says that we bear one another's burdens and that love covers a multitude of sins. So we're in this together. And uh, I think there's some, some concern and some worry um, about different churches that, that kind of are, are, are uh, different folks that have different opinions. And I just want to encourage us to be united together, okay, that we're in this together. We're going to get through it together. Hey, welcome to South City. If you're here with us on our campus or if you're watching from home, we're so glad that you're with us. Uh, Ecclesia literally is just a Greek word for the gathered group of believers. It is the church. And so we're gathered, whether it's here on campus or whether you're watching from home, is a beautiful time for us just to be together. Uh, I want to go ahead and get into our series this morning. We're in a series called Ecclesia that is basically focusing on the seven churches in Revelation 2 and chapter 3. These churches are uh, real churches that Jesus literally wrote letters to. Uh, He gave this information to the Apostle John, and John had somebody deliver these actual letters to actual churches. What's so interesting about this is it wasn't just for those churches. Every church since then, and including us now, can benefit from what Jesus was wanting to say to his church. What were the things he was encouraging? There was two churches that all he did was encourage. There were five churches that, that got some encouragement and some uh, rebuke. And so where does that leave us today? Hopefully it leaves us looking into his word, uh, truly trying to understand what he's saying to his church so that we as believers and we as South City can say, God, who do you want us to be? Uh, last week I made the comment about the fact that these churches seem to sort of be going from, from uh bad to worse, right? And they, they, they sort of do. I mean, it started with Ephesus. They had good theology, but they didn't have a love for Jesus. And then we went to Smyrna. And uh, Smyrna was, was struggling in their persecution. And Jesus just encouraged them. Uh, we get to Pergamum. They were compromising their faith with the world. Last week, we talked about Thyatira and the fact that they had allowed a false doctrine and a false prophet into the church. And they had allowed also lots of compromise into the church. Well, it just gets worse because today Jesus is going to say to the church at Sardis, you've done all those things. You've done all those things and you are a mess. In fact, you're just dead. You're a dead church. So it's just gone from bad to worse. Let's get into our text this morning if we can. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God... And the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments, and then I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
to the churches. Can we pray this morning and ask the Lord just to help us to try and digest this together? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to come together, whether it be in person on campus or whether it be watching from home for this season. God, thank you for the gathered body of Christ. Lord, thank you that we get to look into your word, we get to study, we get to truly try and understand contextually what you're saying and historically what you're saying and and even in, in imagery, Lord, what are you trying to say to that church and to us? God, I pray that we would dig all the meaning out and that you would Help us, Lord, to, to be courageous, to make the choice that you've offered these, uh, these folks here in Sardis, to wake up and to be alive for you and honoring you with our lives and how we live. Lord Jesus, would you please, by your spirit, lead us to all truth. The same spirit you have in this text, the same spirit that speaks to these churches, speak to ours today and lead us to truth. Father, we pray that you would increase in this time. Lord Jesus, I pray that, you, that I would decrease, that I would be forgotten and the truth of your word be remembered, oh God. Help us to be serious about this time as we look into it. Help us to understand it for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning I want us to uh, begin with kind of a historical look at this study in the city of Sardis. What is it about this city? It's actually a pretty interesting city. How many of you like gold shows, shows about gold on, on TV? I'm kind of crazy about them. I don't know why. Like, this is like the only gold I have is this ring of my wedding ring. But I love watching, sh- like, uh, Gold Rush, and I don't know. I'm, now I'm into, like, gold of, this, gold of the second World War II, and I don't care what it is. I just love watching people hunt for gold. I don't know why I do, but I do. It's a guy thing. Uh, have you ever heard of the story of King Midas? Some of you say, yeah, he owns a muffler shop. That's the guy that, you know. No, it's actually from Greek mythology. It's a story of a king, and he had this, some of you might think it's a blessing, but it was really a curse. And that is that everything he touched in the myth would turn to gold. Remember that? Well, you, it sounds great until you realize I want to hold my child or I want to get something to eat. And then you realize this is not a blessing, it's a curse. Well, supposedly in the story, Zeus tells King Midas that he needs to go wash himself in the river Pactolus. Uh, And so he goes and he washes, and supposedly he's cured from this curse. Well, what's interesting about our story today is the city of Sardis, running through the city of Sardis, is the river Pactolus. Interestingly, in addition to that, is it's a river of gold. So I think that probably came before the story, if you know what I mean. Um, But this is very interesting to me. It was full of gold. And so it made kings incredibly rich. At one time, uh, the kings of Sardis, the kingdom of Sardis was the richest place in the world. And they were the richest kings in the world because of that river of gold. It's an incredible, incredible story. Uh, This could have been the first place that they actually minted coins of gold or silver. We're not sure. Uh, One of those kings is a man by the name of King Creasus. He, uh, he built this incredible citadel on top of the cliffs of Sardis. Uh, ultimately, he, he thought that that would be far enough from his enemies that he would be safe. He ends up being defeated in uh, 546 BC, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But uh, just an incredible, incredible place. After his defeat, the Persians come in, and they bring in Jews, Jewish families, over 2,000 Jewish families into the area. And then when the Romans take control, they allow the Jews to build 
the biggest synagogue outside of Judea is in Sardis. And what's interesting is you can go today to the ruins of Sardis and still see the ruins of that synagogue. And in that synagogue are uh, icons of Roman uh, architecture and icons of Roman government, which means you think the church or you think that the, the synagogue was influenced by government? Yeah. So there's Roman eagles on altars in the Jewish synagogue. It's, it's, a, it's not a good thing, but we can still see it in the synagogue represented today. So Sardis is a famous, famous place. Again, one of the wealthiest in the world. But as you look at the history of Sardis, you see it's a city of decline. It started off great, right? The citadel in the sky on the cliffs with a moat of a river of gold. I mean, how do you get better than that, right? It's pretty dreamy. And then it it falls to to an enemy, falls again to an enemy 300 years later, in 17 AD, an earthquake comes, shakes everything up, and the city literally falls to ruins. It continues to disintegrate and decline. And if you go to where Sardis was today, all you're going to find are ruins. I mean, literally from, from a prominence as a city to literal obscurity, it was a city of decline. In fact, it was also called the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills. You could stand at some place in Sardis and see in the geography of the land these hills of cemeteries, of kings, and different people for seven miles. It was known for its decline and for its death. So that's some of the history. Let's look in the, in the imagery. Jesus says in verse 1, chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Sardis, he says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What is Jesus talking about? The seven spirits of God, right? Uh, I'll tell you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about seven Holy Spirits. He's talking about one Holy Spirit. Some theologians think he's talking about the fact that uh, maybe because the Spirit is speaking to seven churches, maybe that has something uh, to do with it. Maybe it has to do with the, the, the number seven is the number for completion or perfection. And he has the perfect and complete Holy Spirit to give. But I think it has more to do with the elements or the aspects of what the Holy Spirit does and who he is. Look with me in Isaiah Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and we'll see the definition of this in a prophetic messianic uh, prophecy here. He says in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And speaking about who? Jesus, right? This is a messianic prophecy. And we know that the spirit of God is the spirit of Jesus. This is even what he's saying here. And then we also know that Jesus is the one who sins the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says about the Spirit. Count with me, ready? Verse 2 says, and the Spirit of the Lord, this one, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven different descriptions of the Spirit of God. I think this is more true to what Jesus is saying. Uh, what is he talking about with the seven stars? When we had the very first message in this series, we were looking at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, it says that Jesus walked among the lampstands. Remember that? And the lampstands are the churches. They are the churches of Jesus. They are the ones who are shining the light of Jesus into a dark world. But then he says in one hand, he holds the stars. And we talked about the fact that he, what he's talking about there are pastors. It's very comforting to me to know that Jesus holds the pastors of these churches. 
What Jesus is saying in this moment, in this imagery about the seven spirits and the seven pastors is, he's saying, I have the Holy Spirit and I have biblical leadership for the church, neither of which you have in Sardis. You see that? He's saying, you don't have the Holy Spirit because you're dead. And you also don't have biblical leadership because of of what has been allowed in the church. He says, I hold both of these and I can give them to you. And the good news is, God is in the business of making dead things alive, right? And that's the beauty of this story. Jesus calls this church a zombie church, right? Verse two, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Your reputation is that you're alive, but really you're dead. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big zombie movie fan. I don't get into them, I don't like them. I'm a kid of the 80s. And so I grew up and the exorcist came out and I was pretty much done with that whole sort of thing, that whole genre. I'm, I'm thank you, I'm good. Uh, I don't like zombie movies, they're weird. And the thing is, is these people sort of look like they're alive. They're walking around, they, they make movement, they grunt, they do different things. They, they, they seem sort of alive, but really they're the walking dead. They're dead people. Jesus is saying that of this church. He's saying, you have a reputation of once being alive. At some point in the, in the life or ministry of this church, it was a thriving church. They were doing good things. They had ministry. You had a reputation of having life, but now you're dead, and all you have now is the reputation. You don't have the works. This is what he says. I know your works, and he doesn't say anything about the works. The works are that it's in your reputation, not in the present day. You are not alive. You're a dead church. I can't help but think about uh, this church. I can't help but think about this church. At one time, this church was a leading church. I I bet if if I've heard it one time, I've heard it literally a hundred times, literally in the last three or four years. When God called my family to come and and lead this church, Temple Baptist Church is what it was, I heard from literally hundreds of people, oh man, Temple, that was the church. I mean, it was the flagship church. It was the church that were doing all these things. Man, that was the church. I heard it over and over. And what they were saying is that church had a reputation. That church sent missionaries. That church planted churches. That church, uh, the the Baptist Missionary Association, as an association that that got to about 1,500 churches at one point, started out of Temple Baptist Church out of a meeting of Temple Baptist Church. Uh, other places, Life Word Broadcast Ministries, which is flourishing and, and broadcast the gospel in 70 languages, started out of some men in Temple Baptist Church that wanted to see the gospel go to the world. Next door is a building. Some of you wonder what that building is. It's a, a place that does a, a little subscription magazine called The Trumpet. That at once, one time, was the newsletter of Temple Baptist Church. And now they still send letters to all the churches in in that association, the Baptist Missionary Association. God used temple in mighty ways, but guess what? It began to die. And you can't live off of former glory. At one time, it had significance. At one time, it had great things and good pastors and and good followership and good leadership and, and great ministry. But something changed, and the church began to die. Did you know there are, there are dead churches all over the country? There are dead churches all over southwest Little Rock, all over this central Arkansas. 
Did you know seven to 10,000 churches die and close their doors every year? Think about that. Seven to 10,000 churches close their doors every year. It's heartbreaking. How many are zombie churches just about to close? They sort of look like they're alive. They sort of look like they're still going, but they're dead. They have an appearance of life, but they're dead. Tom Rainer is uh, he's the president of Lifeway, which is the educational arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they also had Lifeway stores and stuff. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's a very interesting book, and he says he lists some of the, the uh, causes of death of churches. I think it's important for us to not only remember this from the temple aspect, but also for the South, South City reasons, right? We need to remember what is it that happens when a church begins to die so we can be on the other end of that, a church of life. It says uh, that some of the causes of death are treating the past as a hero. Your past was the greatest thing ever, and that's all you can talk about because nothing is happening in your present when you treat the past as your hero. Living off the glory days. Refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Right? I'm not worried about what's out there. What's important is in here. The, the community changes. The church should change. The church should look different. As the community looks different, the church should look different because we're reaching into the community and the community means something to us. It, you begin to die when you move your focus of your budget inward instead of outward when all you want to do is just focus on your projects your pet projects instead of being about the great commission that's the next one allowing the great commission to become the great omission you just omit it we're not about reaching out we're not about taking jesus to the world no let's just do our stuff and focus on ourselves you die when you let the church become preference driven out of selfish and personal agendas Friends, this is not our church. This is Jesus' church. Guess what? I'm the under-shepherd. I'm not the head shepherd. Jesus is the head shepherd of this church. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what you want. It only matters what Jesus wants and that we are obedient to that. Here's the next thing. You begin to see the tenure of pastors decreasing. When church begins to die, the tenure of pastors, the time spent in ministry at that church begins to minimize. I was talking to a friend or a guy I met at a funeral this weekend, and he, we were talking about a church, and he was saying, oh, man, there's so much turnover. And, and I started thinking about this very thing. I thought, yeah, you're right. There's so much turnover. What does that mean when the culture of a church has so much turnover? Well, I, I want to brag on your pastors for a moment, excluding me. <laughs> I want to brag on the men who serve you. See, last, last fall, we had to make a decision about our budget and that we had to lower their salaries, some of them as much as 25%. One pastor lost all of his income. Not one pastor left us. Not one pastor said, this is unfair. Every one of those men said, I'm in. Because I believe God is doing something in this church. This is the culture that Jesus is bringing here in South City. And I'm so thankful for the men that I serve with and the hearts of their willingness to stay and work and serve. What about when we fail to have regular corporate prayer? And prayer just becomes a transition in the service instead of a, a, a plea 
before a holy God that he would continue to be present with us and move us and give us wisdom to listen to what he wants and courage to obey it. Here's the next one, having no clear vision or purpose. Our vision's on our our back door back there to remind us we need to be about what God has called us to be about. We exist to love God and all people by becoming authentic disciples who make disciples for the glory of God and the good of the city. We have a vision, we have a purpose, but when you don't, you begin to die. And then lastly, Rainer says, you begin to obsess over your facilities and your property. When you begin to die as a church, certain things become more important than the cause of Christ. And it's easy to to make buildings monuments. I'm, I'm so thankful and so grateful for Brother Jerry and Pastor Jerry and Miss, Miss, Miss Sue because honestly, they came in as, as a pastoring family probably at the lowest point in this church. And I just love the story because it's just like God to bring an all-star, right? So in my opinion, somebody who's just a man of integrity, a man of humility, a man of prayer into this church and a dying church and for years, Brother Jerry wasn't worried about being flashy. He wasn't worried about being the coolest church in the city. He led this congregation to just pray. And every week they begin to pray and pray and pray. Lord, have your will in this church. Give us life again. Give us children running around in the courtyard again. Do something here, God, that only you can do. He led this church in that way. And how grateful we are for his faithful leadership in our church. You know, one of the things when God laid on my heart to come and pastor here. There, I, I've told you the story. The Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and uh, gave me a vision for this place. One of the things I wrote in the list was not former glory, but future significance. It's on my list. Not former glory. God, I don't believe God wants to revitalize Temple Baptist Church. I believe he wants to exceed the works of Temple Baptist Church. I believe he wants to do more than we've ever seen done before. He's not finished with us, and that's exactly what Jesus says to the Sardians here. He says, you're dead, it's time to wake up. Have you ever seen a boxing match where somebody gets clocked and they're out? And the, and the guy comes over with the smelling salts under his nose, and I'm blah, you know? Jesus is going, wake up! Come on, let's go! You're dead, but wake up! We got work to do. Look what he says in verse two. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The first thing I notice about this sentence, this plea of Jesus is that he says, it's your choice. It's your choice. You wanna wake up? Wake up. Wake up. He, he doesn't force you to wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. If there's any little element of godliness, any little element of passion for Jesus, then strengthen it. Shore it up because it's about to die. And then he says, because your works are not over. You're not done yet. I remember sitting across the table with, with Pastor Jerry explaining my vision, what I thought the Lord was laying on my heart. And he's bawling his eyes out. I'm, I'm bawling my eyes out. And he can barely make the words to say, I'm, I'm telling him literally the things on my heart the things I want to see in vision. He goes, those are my visions. That's my heart. That's what I've wanted to see happen here. See, and the truth is, it wasn't his vision or it wasn't my vision. It was God's vision. 
And we were just saying, Lord, what is your vision? And let us be obedient to that. Let us just agree with that and follow what you want to do. Praise God that in his kindness and his grace, he's waking us up. Amen? He's waking us up. Then Jesus says, how, how, this is how you're going to wake up. He says, you're going to remember and you're going to repent. Verse 3 says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. We just took communion. Jesus says, when you take communion, remember. Pastor Elvis just shared that with us. It's so important that when we, we do this exercise, isn't it brilliant that Jesus would, would put this in place? Elvis talked about this is a, a, a function of the church that should, should go on. This is an imperative of Jesus. Remember to continue to do this until I come. Why? So that it'll help us remember the story of his death. It'll help us remember that we're forgiven only by his grace. That this is the whole, this is the end all be all of the gospel. That God is good that he would send his only son who didn't deserve death for a people who do. Isn't that good? And we remember, we remember, Jesus says here to the Sardians, remember then what you received. I told you the synagogue was the biggest outside of Judea. If, if uh, a play was taken from Paul's evangelistic playbook, most likely uh, there were missionaries that came from the church in Ephesus to Sardis. And guess where they probably went? Synagogue, right? They probably stood on that floor. They probably preached the gospel of Jesus in that place. At some point when people began to trust the Lord to be their savior, they were baptized because that's what they did. They were also established in the faith. Jesus is saying, don't you remember the gospel that was given to you? Don't you remember being baptized into this faith where you said, that's all that matters to me, I want to stand for Christ? Don't you remember being established in the faith? Remember then what you received and what you heard. Then he says, keep it. What does he mean by keep it? He means live it. Live by it. Practice this faith. It's not, the Christian faith is not a prayer you pray at camp and you never go back to again. It's something you keep. It's something you live, it's something you believe, it's something that is passionate, thriving in you. You're alive by the grace of God. Keep it, he says. And then he says, repent. You know, repentance literally means to turn the other direction, to stop going in a sinful or a, a selfish direction, to turn and go in a different direction. But repentance is also not a one and done. It's not at camp, I repented. I, Glad I didn't have to do that again. Friends, as believers in Jesus, we need to be repenting every day. Every day we need to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Help me to turn from my sinfulness and turn towards you. We need to live lives of repentance. Not just pray prayers, but live lives of repentance. Not because our performance is what matters. No, out of humility, we remember this story of Jesus and we long to obey him, to serve him because we love him. And then Jesus says, you have a choice. I want you to wake up. But if you don't wake up, this is what's gonna happen. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the most frightening ideas in my heart and mind 
is being asleep in my safe haven of my home, right? Being asleep in my home and being at rest in my bed and, and I'm out and there actually be someone with ill intent in my home. Some who, someone who's to bring harm, someone who wants to steal from me. There's nothing more frightening in, in, my, in my mind. Jesus is saying, you won't know it, but judgment will come on you when you don't know it. Harm will come on you when you don't know it. And I want you to know something historically about the city of Sardis. These people would have known what he was saying. Jesus was very uh, specific in what he was saying here because I told you about King Creasus. He lived in this incredible tower, citadel over the cliffs. And he had, a, he had guards that would guard every gate and every, every uh, stronghold except for the area of cliffs because he thought those cliffs were impenetrable. No one surely could climb those cliffs. It's impossible, he thought. And so King Chrysus slept in his bed with, with, with peace in his heart and a thief climbed up those almost impossible, almost impenetrable cliffs, let himself in the city, open the gates, and he was destroyed and his city was overtaken. Thief came in. 300 years later, the exact same thing happened in that city. Another king slept thinking nobody can climb up these cliffs. And guess what? Somebody did it again. So when Jesus says to them very specifically, I'm going to come like a thief. Remember that? Wink, wink. This city would have known exactly what he meant. Their city had been destroyed. It had been ruined because they hadn't kept watch over those cliffs. They had made a decision that it wasn't important. And they had lost their city. And Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus, of course, is also referring to his second coming. Revelation 16, he says, literally, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. For those that are not watching, and so for us as believers, we need to keep watch. I don't know about you, but in the last couple months, I've been thinking about end times and Jesus' return a little bit more than I was before. You? I don't know if he's coming tomorrow and 40 years from now, I don't know. But I know I'm ready. I'm ready. I did a funeral um, Friday. And in the middle of the funeral, I'm doing this funeral, and all of a sudden, gunshot shots start going off very close. And at first, it's like, oh, you know, like everybody kind of ducks. And then we realize it's just, we're kind of out in the country, and uh, they don't know we're having a funeral, and somebody's doing target practice in the middle of me giving a message at a funeral. But I kind of make a joke like, well, I hope you're ready because we might meet him sooner than we, we thought. You know, I kind of make a joke about it. But then I went, but you know what? I'm ready. Are you? I'm ready. If Jesus comes back today, I'm ready to meet him. I can't wait. So we get back to our text. And Jesus says, listen, there are faithful few who are still passionate, still living for me. Verse Four. Yet you have still a few names. I'm thinking when you say few, two, three, four, very few. Jesus says you have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Jesus sees just a few. And they're hanging on. What does he mean by they have not soiled their garments? What he means is they have not allowed their lives to connect to compromise. See, all these other churches, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, this would mean churches of compromise. They're doing any and everything. Oh, then we're going to go to church too. Oh, yeah, we're going to be both. 
These, there's a few people that have not soiled their lives in compromise. But then he says that they're going to walk with him in white clothes. And they're, they're, they're going to be clean. They're going to be worthy. Can I just say, and we know this already, those of us who've been studying, there's nothing we can do to be clean. There's no amount of work or Christian exercise or discipline that can bring us to cleanliness in Jesus, right? It, it, it can't happen. The only way that these people are clean, the only way that these people have been washed and walk in white, the only way that they're worthy is because Jesus washed them and he made them worthy. That's it. Ultimately, he is our only hope for being washed and worthy. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's his work that he's done. Revelation 7, 14 says, they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's only in Jesus' blood through his sacrifice that we can be made clean, new and whole, made worthy. Romans 3 makes it very clear, apart from Christ, nobody's worthy. Romans 3 says, everybody's guilty. No, not one is righteous. Even when we think we're righteous, Isaiah says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's disgusting before God. But when Jesus clothes us, when Jesus forgives us, and when Jesus washes us, we're washed white as snow. And then lastly, I want you to see Jesus makes a comment about how secure we are in him and how he supports us. Verse five, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, what does it mean? We've heard that actually in several of these letters to these churches. Sometimes he says, to the one who overcomes, or to the one who conquers. What does he mean exactly? Look at uh, 1 John 5, 5. We're going to read this out of the New International Version. He says, whoever, uh, he says, who is it that overcomes the world? Or who is it that is a conqueror of the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is Jesus talking about? How do we conquer? How do we overcome? By faith. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. Those of us that trust in that salvation, those of us that know him as our Savior, we will overcome. Not by our strength, not by our goodness, not by our ability, only because of our faith in the Son of God, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. And then Jesus shows us our security in him. When he says, and I will never blot his name from the book of life. I'll never blot his name from the book of life. What is the book of life? It's a pretty interesting comment. Well, we, we see this several places throughout the whole of Scripture. Uh, Jesus speaks about it several times in his ministry. Uh, Moses, David, Paul, John, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel all speak about the book of life. It's basically a registry for people who are in the kingdom of God. This is a book of showing people who are saved, who know Christ. Jesus says, never will I blot, uh, blot you out of this book. Never will I erase your name, never. You are secure in me. 
I think Jesus is saying this to this church because around the early church, there was a, a movement in the Jewish faith. And they came up with this thing called the curse of Minim. And what it was was, it was kind of a way to try and out Christians in, in synagogues. And they would say, Here, here's what, what I want you to do. I want you to uh, admit that you live by the Mosaic law, right? That uh, and if you don't, you will be blotted out of the book of life. Well, and if a Christian were, they wouldn't be able to say that. They would say, well, I know that I'm going to be safe. I know that Christ has saved me. It's not a matter of living by the law. It's a matter of my faith in him as the son of God. And they would be outed sort of as Christians. I think Jesus is speaking this to say, some people say you can be blotted out of this book. I'm telling you, you'll never be blotted out. You'll never be erased. Even in the Reformation, the Pope and the Catholic Church said to reformers like Martin Luther, you're going to be blotted out of the book of life. Let me tell you something. The Jewish faith didn't have the power and the Pope didn't have the power to erase someone's name from the book of life. Jesus said, you're secure. We'll not erase your name from the book of life if you know me as your savior. Daniel Aiken says this, he's a professor, writer, pastor. He says, uh, the promise that our names are permanently affixed signatures in the book of life is a promise that should move us, motivate us, compel us out of the grace gratitude to complete our works, bear our witness, stay clean and pursue purity that reflects the transforming work of Christ. Knowing that Jesus won't erase our name from the book of life shouldn't make us then want to go live our own life, do whatever we want to do in sinfulness. No, knowing that Jesus secures us and stands with us ought to make us want to finish the work he has for us, want to live lives of holiness, to love him and serve him. That's what it ought to lead us Two, that not only are we secure in our salvation, but it's just good to know he stands with us and he speaks for us. Look what Jesus says. He says, I will confess his name, speaking of the one who overcomes and believes that he is the son of God. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is something Jesus had said before. He said it in Matthew 10, 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. I think Jesus is saying this now because this has been an issue in Sardis. I think it was an issue in Thyatira. It was an issue in Pergamos. I think it was an issue everywhere. People were not willing to make a stand for Jesus. Guess what? It's an issue in central Arkansas. People are not willing to say, no, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus as my Savior. I'll make a stand for him. He is mine. I am his. There was great fear. That's why Jesus spoke to the church of Smyrna and said, be strong. You're going to come under great persecution. Be strong. Even if you have to come to the place of giving your life, I will give you a crown of life. People were afraid to make a stand for Jesus. And so in his rebuke and in his encouragement to these believers, he says, listen, I'll stand with you. I'll stand with you. You've stood for me. I will stand with you. Jesus is also speaking about judgment throne of Christ, of God. One day, this great judgment will take place and the enemy will accuse us of all the things that, that we've done wrong. And Jesus will say, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> he's mine 
Drew Klein, that's mine. He's mine. I've forgiven all those things that he did. I made him new. He's mine. I speak for him. Praise God that he will stand for us and that he secures our salvation for all eternity. Verse 6. It's a verse that's been said in every church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, as I close this morning, can I ask you this question? Are you listening? Do you hear? Do you have an ear to hear the truth? Is there something that's been said this morning that's making you think, man, I need to wake up. I have been asleep. I have allowed my my faith to be a dead faith. Can I just tell you, looks can be deceiving. (laughs) I've said this before, but this is a fairly American tradition that we um, try to make our dead look alive, right? We put makeup on them, we try to make dead bodies look like they're not dead. They're, They're dead. I can't help but think about that silly 80s movie, Weekend at Bernie's, when they tried to make him look alive, right? He's not alive. At times he tried, they, they tried to make him look alive, but he wasn't alive. He was dead. So what does it mean? What is, it, what is needed for a church to be alive? Very quickly, let me just run through what we've learned so far. In Ephesus, we need to know that, yes, we need theology, but we need love for Jesus as well, right? Uh, in Smyrna, we've learned we need to endure persecution and difficulty. Even when it's difficult, even if it even costs our lives, Hold on, We'd be willing to sacrifice, be willing to suffer, be willing to endure for the cause of Christ. Pergamum, we don't compromise with the world. We don't play a game and soil our witness, our testimony by compromising with things that are clearly against God. Thyatira, we don't tolerate false doctrine or false preachers, false prophets, we hold on to Jesus. We have works like they have. A church needs to be a church of works, of love and service. And patient endurance of growth, that we're growing in Christ. That's what a church needs to be. And then we look at Sardis today. What did we learn from Sardis? We need life. We need a vibrant life. We need a vibrant faith. We need to wake up and remember to be the people he's called us to be. Jesus is saying to this church, do you remember who you are? Because you've forgotten. He wouldn't tell them to remember unless they had forgotten Have you forgotten? Do you know who you are? I I, I just ask the question, are are you a zombie Christian? (laughs) The times that you look alive, times that you show up at church, but your faith is dead. I I remember in high school, I've told you this many times before, I I was going through the motions I lived a, a double life, and I would struggle, and I would struggle in sin one day, and I would be in complete repentance the next day, and my heart was ripped in two. And I remember driving down the road, and I was listening to a song. It's one of the reasons I love music so much. I was listening to a song of Stephen Curtis Chapman, and I was singing the lyrics because I had them memorized, but I'd never heard them. I knew them, but I'd never heard them. And by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, he helped me hear the lyric that said, are you waiting for lightning, a sign that it's time for a change? Like, are you waiting for some cosmic event to zap you and go change? He says, 
Are you listening for thunder while he quietly whispers your name? Man, I'm driving down the access road, no kidding, right out here. I had to pull my car over to the side and weep because God helped me hear the true lyrics of that song that I, has, I was waiting. I was backing up. I wasn't doing what God called me to do. What was I waiting on? What are you waiting on? To be alive, to have life in Jesus. Lightning strike might not happen. Thunder cloud may not come, but he quietly whispers your name. He whispers to your heart even today. Are you alive? Is there life in your faith? Do you have a vibrant faith? Remember who you are. Keep this faith. Live a life of repentance ongoing. Live your life for Jesus knowing that he's the one who's watched you. He's the only one who can make us worthy, and he's the one that secures our faith. He'll never erase your name. He will stand for you. He will speak for you. Isn't that good to know? I hope it causes us to say, it's time to wake up. Can I just say, South City, it's time to wake up. We got work to do. Man, we got work to do. I've never felt it in my bones as much as I do now. We've got work to do. There are people that don't know Jesus. We've got to let go of these personal, private little things or whatever that's keeping us from complete devotion and commitment to Jesus and say, God, what do you want to do here? Do it in me. Bring revival, God. Let it start not in a dead heart of mine, in one that's alive and awake and ready for whatever you want to do. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that you spoke this truth to this church in Sardis. You didn't hold back. You spoke truth in love. And you reminded them, God, that you are in the business of making dead things alive. Holy Spirit of the living God, would you speak that same truth to whoever's listening to this message in this room? online, Facebook, a podcast, wherever it is, God, help them to know if there is death in their heart that you can bring them to life. They may be dead in addiction and sin, and God, that won't stop you from bringing life to their soul because you love them and you've given them the choice. Wake up, but you've also given them the warning. If you don't wake up, judgment will come. You won't know when it comes. Judgment will come against you. Friend, as we pray this morning, can I just ask you, is your name in that book of life? Is your name in that book? If you're in this room right now, or if you're watching, and you would say to me, I don't know, I'm not sure, I want to pray for you. I'm not gonna call you out, I promise. But if, if, if you would say, and you're in the room with me today, and you'd say, I just don't know if my name is in that book, would you pray for me? Would you just lift up your hand? All that, every head is bowed, nobody's looking. I just wanna see your hand if that's you, and I wanna pray for you. Anybody? Praise God. 
Listen, if you're watching today and you would say, I don't know if my name is in that book, would you just stop what you're doing right now? Just quiet the noise of your life and say, Jesus, I want to know you. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the Son of God. I want to conquer. I want to overcome this world. I want to be yours. I believe this story of repentance and redemption, God. I, I, I repent and I, I want you to redeem me and change me and help me, Lord, to live a different life than I've lived. By your grace, will you save me, Lord Jesus? I confess my sin. I believe that you died for me, that you rose on the third day and that you can give me a life of following you, a life of joy. Save me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Or maybe you're a Christian today and you're saying, man, my faith is dead. If I'm honest, I'm not sure there's a heartbeat in my faith. I'm struggling. I'm just going to tell you as people in the room, this altar is going to be opened in a minute as we sing. And I'm going to tell you watching online, there's an altar right where you are. Your knees could fall on the ground. You could raise your hands to the sky. Bow your head and close your eyes and say, Lord, help me to have a vibrant faith that's alive and use me for your glory. Lord, that's our prayer. We learn from the church at Sardis today, God, this dead church, and we learn from Temple Baptist Church, God, a dying church, that you can bring anything back to life by your power, by your glory, by your kindness, by your mercy. Continue to bring us to life. Continue to wake us up because you're not done with the work you have for this church. And Lord, help us to follow you, to serve you, to be ready to do whatever you want to do in our city, in our homes, at our work, around the world. Lord, use us, move us. For your glory we pray. In Jesus' precious name.